this first part that I'm going to talk about is actually an announcement. So um, uh, it's not that Terry's forgotten one. It's uh, but but what a what a deep and a powerful time we had last Sunday with Ed and Hardy. It was an incredible um, word that they spoke to the church. And the, the apostolic, the translocal, is God's gift to the local church. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says, Talk, the context is God or Jesus ascending on high and giving gifts to his people. He says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Why? To equip his people, that's all of us, for what? For works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up and we all reach the unity of the faith in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, so God's plan is to equip the body, to build us up, and He gives these gifts like Ed and Hardy, men who have an apostolic calling or a prophetic calling or a, any one of those things that Paul mentions, so that we are equipped to do works of service. In other words... All of us are to be ministering, like Terry said. We are all ministers. We are all to be priests. We're the priesthood of all believers. And that's what Paul is saying. He says God gives these gifts to equip us, to train us, so that we can all be ministers and priests to each other in order that we can be mature and the church can be built up. And Ed is a tremendous pastor, and he's got an incredible teaching gift and a a preaching gift. And so... If you were here last Sunday, then you'll know that we had this truth of God, but just presented in a fresh light. And didn't you want to love God's bride and his body and his family after he preached? He preached about the family. If you missed last Sunday, please listen to the messages online. We were inspired, and it's this beautiful partnership we have with NCMI. We get to have these gifts of people in, and... Before Ed and Heidi came, the week before they came, I felt in my heart, and this is not something we've ever done in this church, okay? So just so you know, we've never done this thing we're about to do in this church ever. (laughs) I felt we should take up an offering as a church for Ed and Heidi to honor them. They're the couple that planted this church, to honor them, to bless them, and to sow into what God is doing through them um, in South Africa and around the world. And so it would have been awkward for me to talk about it while they were here. Hey guys, everyone take out your wallet and here's Ed and Heidi. Like, how awkward would they feel? Right? You would be upset with me because you were unprepared. You didn't, we didn't warn you that we we're going to take up an offering for Ed and Heidi. So that, that would also have been wrong for me to speak about it last week. But just to lay a very brief foundation, biblically, our giving to God's work, His kingdom, falls into two categories. Right? There's tithing, and there's offering. Tithing is what all Christians should do. We give regularly 10% of our um, gross income, whether it be your salary or commission or investment income or share or profit or bonuses or whatever it might be. We give that into the local church for what God is doing through this local church. And if you're part of this local church, this is where you should be tithing. We all know that, right? This is not new for us. But the second type of giving the Bible talks about is offerings. And that's not redirecting your tithe that month. That's over and above what we give for tithes. It's an offering, right? And the Bible gives loads of examples, and we've done many of them over the years. Giving to the poor and needy. Remember last year, the floods in KZN? We gave into that. Remember COVID? 
We did loads of stuff through COVID for the poor, for those in need. Remember the, um, the riots in KZN two years ago? We not only gave physical cash to the churches down there, but we brought physical stuff and we drove to KZN and we dropped off food and supplies. We're a generous church. We love to give. And so we've given a lot to the poor and the needy. There are other examples in the Bible where people give into projects, like a building project, for example. We've done that a couple times over the years. But the other kind of giving we see, which we haven't done a lot of in a public way, as a church we give into the apostolic, but we've not taken up offerings as a church for the translocal or the apostolic. So you read the New Testament and you find that Paul was given financial aid support from some of the churches he partnered with. That was to help him go around preaching the gospel and planting new churches, etc. Sometimes he worked, he had a physical job, he was a tent maker. Other times he was supported by, by others. And so I would love us as a church to continue our generosity, right? But not just for the poor and the needy, but outward to the apostolic to help other churches be blessed like we were blessed last weekend with, with Ed and Heidi being here. And so um, Ed and Heidi, when, when we give to them as a church, they have a ministry bank account. They don't just put it into their, <laughs> I'm going on holiday fund. <laughs> like they have a ministry account that they use to go to other churches. And so we want to honor them and bless them. And so what does that look like practically for us? Go and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I think it is, those two chapters. Paul gives very practical advice. He says, I'm coming to visit you, Corinthian church, and when I come, I'm going to take up an offering for X and Y, but when I come, I don't want you to be embarrassed that you, oh, you suddenly forgot there's this offering happening. So I'm telling you about an advance, and here's a way to do it. Every week when you get paid, I think they were weekly wage earners in Corinth back then, set aside some money. Put some away, save some, in keeping with your earning, don't give everything away because then you've got nothing to live on. It's very practical advice. And when I come, you're going to be ready. And it's going to be a gift gladly given because you're ready for it, right? You're prepared for it. And so at the end of August, we're going to take up an offering to bless Ed and Heidi, an apostolic kind of offering. We'll mention it again next week, but... Any funds that come into the church bank account that say, and please use like a logical reference when you EFT, like apostolic or ed, if you say tithe, it's going to go to the tithes, okay? So when you EFT, make sure you use the right kind of reference, but go and pray and ask God how much you should give to the nations and seeing God's plan um, go throughout planet earth. Is that all right? Awesome. Father, as we look at your word this morning, we are so grateful for the gifts like Ed and Heidi and what they add into the local church. And I pray now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, that you would bring light and life in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You brought up that first picture of the, the sports stars. Recognize these, lots of soccer players. I know we are a soccer-loving church. There's some smiles going all around. Zidane, Beckham. Who's the guy in the bottom right corner? The bottom right corner. Sorry, that's left. Yeah, you're right. We're just sorry. The left corner. Who's in the, who's in the bottom left corner? Come on, the old people. No, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, Man United. Rusty Erasmus. What a good game yesterday, hey? Hey, the box dominated those Welsh guys. We had such a funny moment. We were telling our kids we we're going to watch the rugby 
and we're going to go to Candice's mom's house. We're going to have Borovos rolls and South Africa versus Wales. And so Finley, our youngest, he's four. He says, are they going to play underwater? We're like, what do you mean? They're playing the whales. <laughs> he's thinking like this big underwater animal, right? So we had to explain, no, Wales is a country. There are people who live there, and they want to play rugby. So anyway, well done, Rossi and his team. But, but all of these sports stars, have you noticed? It also happens in cricket, actually. Sports stars, when their career ends... It's like you don't, they don't disappear. These guys are all successful sports stars, but they've come back and been successful coaches, right? Many of other sports stars coach, but they're not very successful. I think of Wayne Rooney. That guy's a terrible coach. His poor team are being relegated. But, 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 and like cricket players, you remember Alan Donald? Who remembers Alan Donald for the old timers? Like he was an amazing bowler. He came back and coached, and now he's commentating. Like you just, you don't get, they, they don't never die, these sports stars, right? But the career ends, but there's such a passion for the game. There's such a desire to see other young people fulfill their dreams of playing soccer or rugby or whatever. It is. They want to give back to the game, so they come and they coach, or they come and they commentate, or whatever they do. Sports stars inspire us. Paul, the apostle, right? He... He got radically saved. He was persecuting the church. But then he started preaching the gospel. And he started traveling around and planting churches. He was very successful, like all of these sports stars. But he had his career cut short. He got chucked in prison. He couldn't go about preaching the gospel. He couldn't go starting new churches. He couldn't go and strengthen other churches like Ed and Hardy do. He was restricted and limited. He got put in prison. His career ended early. He couldn't come back and coach like these men did. But he still managed to find a way under God to see the kingdom advance, even though he's in jail. He wrote letters to people and to churches, right? Many of these became part of the New Testament that we get to read today. And I want to read this morning, starting from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This is Paul, very successful. The heart of his career stops short. He's in prison. Can't go do what he wants to do. Can't do the thing that's beating inside him. Preach the gospel. He says this, Ephesians 4, 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, he's in chains, right? I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. As someone who's stuck in prison with no freedoms, if I was out of here, let me tell you what I'd be doing. I'd be preaching the gospel and planting churches and, and debating with the Pharisees and healing the sick. But I can't. And all of you who are free, he says, I urge you, you've got freedom. Go and live the life that's worthy of the calling that you've received. Can you, can you sense the desperation in him? My career's cut short. Career, inverted commas, right? My calling's cut short. But yours, go and do whatever you can. Live out this life that God has for you. He says, take hold of every opportunity. Advance the kingdom. Make your life count. Don't just do vain things for your own enjoyment and pleasure. The end of Ed's sermon last week, he spoke about this deposit that God's put in every one of us 
this gift, this calling, if you like, that we are supposed to make use of. If you're the body, he used that analogy, we're all supposed to be connected and doing our part. And these gifts, these deposits that God's put in each of us, Paul says, like, don't let it lie dormant. He says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that God has put in you. In other words, look after it. Take care of it. Make sure it's working. Don't neglect it. He says, fan into flame the gift of God that's in you by the laying of the hands. There's something Timothy had to do with this gift. Yes, God put it there, but there's something that he had to do with it. Paul could have said the same thing a different way. Live a life worthy of the calling. Some of you might have some idea of your calling. Some of you might be like, I know why God's made me. And that, that passion just beats in your veins every day. But for many Christians, they're unsure. They're unclear. They're undecided. They're uncertain. You know what happens when you're uncertain about something? You kind of just you take a step back. Your foot's not on the accelerator. It's hard to keep going through life, because life happens, if you're not sure of where you're going or why you're going there. The last few weeks before Ed came, we spoke about this topic of how to spend time with God, how to read the Bible, how to hear Him speak, how to pray, how to worship, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And those are all vital for our calling. I want to talk about our calling today. Ed mentioned another major aspect, the church, this body, the family. Don't you love how he said we're a family doing army stuff? Not an army doing family stuff. That was so cool. But our calling is worked out in the context of the family, of the community of God, of His church, of the body. It's vital to our calling, right? So I want to dig a little bit deeper this morning on this topic of calling. It's, it's a big topic. I'm not going to get to lots of things. But many Christians don't know what they're called to. They're unsure. They're uncertain. So they do nothing. When you're not sure about something, you just you sit back and do nothing. That's just human nature. I think the devil loves it when we do that. When we just sit back, well, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's what I'm called to. I'm not... Just confirm it, Lord, writing in the sky or some big sign, and we end up being very inactive in our faith. Other Christians are like, well, I, I almost feel bad because I'm not sure if I'm doing the wrong thing. Am I going to be in trouble from God? Have I missed my calling? Will He be upset with me? Am I doing the wrong thing with my life? And so, you know that God doesn't want us to be confused. There's someone else who wants us to be confused. He wants us to do nothing and sit back and be hesitant and unsure and uncertain. That's not God. God wants us to be sure why we're living and what we're living for. So here's our text for today, Galatians chapter 1. We're just going to look at two verses, Galatians 1 verse 15 and 16. This is Paul writing and he says, But when God, who set me apart from birth... And called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. We'll stop there. But when God, 
who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So Paul's talking about his calling, right? Four ideas, four big ideas on calling from this passage. Number one, God has a plan from day one. God has a plan for my life and your life from day one. Paul says, but when God, who set me apart from birth, so many of us are like, well, I'm going to serve God. I'm going to fulfill my calling when I get out of high school or, or when I finish studying or when I get a, a real job, when I move out of home or when, I, when I've had kids or when I'm married, then I can really serve God fully. You know? We have these futuristic ideas of a better time when it would be easier to serve God, when the kids leave home, when I've got some free time, when I whatever. But God actually has a plan from day one. From before we were born. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I don't know. So you might be like, well, pff, all these years that have come before me, you know that the, the sum of your history, if you add up your life until this point, you are who you are and you, wear, you are where you are because of all the stuff that's gone on in your life. Of your parents and where you were born and what school you went to and how you studied and what jobs you had and who you married and all that stuff, all of your life experiences got you to this point. You are the sum of your history, right? God doesn't define us by that, but where we are is because of what we've been through. Some things are not in our control, our circumstances, etc., other decisions that people made. But you look at Paul, and he was zealous for the law. Before he got saved, he was zealous for the law. He had a zeal for righteousness and doing things perfectly. And he persecuted the church, but then he got radically saved. God didn't change his zealousness for the law, but he sanctified it. So he was still zealous for the Lord, but he understood that the Lord, Jesus, fulfilled the law. And so God used all this stuff in Paul's life, but he just sanctified it. In other words, you and I... All the things that have happened up until this point in our life, you might say, well, that happened before I was saved and whatever. The gifts and talents, God sanctifies them and use them, uses them for His glory. He doesn't waste the past. Okay? What about the stupid decision I made or the bad choice or the sin that I did years or decades ago? You know that God can turn all things to good, even our bad decisions, our sinful ones? He can redeem them, right? Sometimes God doesn't just take them away. There's consequences to our bad decisions. Sometimes God's um, use of those situations is in teaching us wisdom. We recognize, ah, oh, that was a bad decision. <laughs> I better not repeat that. Sometimes that's the lesson, right? That's God teaching us wisdom. Yeah? We, we got to learn. But he wastes nothing from our past. Psalm 139 says this, All the days ordained for me were written about in your book. In other words, God knows he's written a long story, especially if you live a long life. So there's lots of pages that God's written, ordained before they happened. Written them in his book. Oh, where am I? Before one of them came to me. Before tomorrow. Before tomorrow, God's written them in His book. What you're going to do, what time you'll wake up, what mood you're going to be in, what you're going to eat for breakfast, what you're going to... 
Before they happened, God ordained them. He wrote them in His book. Same, the next verse. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. God had a friend. He's a funny guy. You know how we, the theologians say God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. This guy, this friend of mine, Mark Whitfeld, he'd say, God is omnithotic. He's always thinking. That's not, not a real word. But it says, how vast is the sum of your thoughts? We're to try and count your thoughts. They would outnumber the grains of the sand. In other words, God's been thinking about you and me for years and years and decades and centuries and millennia. Thoughts upon thoughts, good thoughts, calling thoughts, destiny thoughts, who you're going to marry thoughts, what you're going to name your kid thoughts. God is thinking about you all the time. Before you were born, God had a plan for your life. And God's been ordaining the days, writing them in His book. Long before we were born, preparing good works in advance for us to do, Ephesians puts it that way. Hebrews says God's marked out a race for us to run. It's the same kind of concept. You know what every page of God's book looks like? for tomorrow when he writes before you wake up the page of your life. You know how he starts every page? Every page. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you hope in the future. That's God's ordaining every day in advance. That's amazing. So Paul says, my, from day one, God has a plan. God has a calling for my life. The second thing Paul says it says, but when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by His grace. Our calling is by grace. It's His calling. It's not because of something we've done. We can't earn a better calling. I'm going to work hard and pray a lot and be religious like Paul, and then I'll get a higher call. No, you can't earn your calling. You can't earn God's love or His grace. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. And his calling, like he doesn't need us. Have you ever thought of that? God does not need you or me. <laughs> but in his grace, he delights to bring his children along on the journey of seeing the kingdom come on planet earth. It's his grace that we get to partner with him. And we're human, like we mess it up most of the time. And yet God still is like, come, we're going to do this thing together. And we don't Make up our call. We don't invent it. Oh, I think I should like to be called to Greece. <laughs> you guys have just come back from Greece. Or Europe. You guys have just come back from Europe. <laughs> you don't just invent our call. We don't make it up. We can't just do anything we want, despite the popular rhetoric of our day. Tell our kids, you can, do, you can be anything you want to be. Well, I, I don't know what the Bible says about that. We can't just do anything we want, but neither does God... Force us to do something we're going to hate. I was so scared when I was a, a new Christian that God would send me to be a missionary to like Mongolia. I was dead scared of like committing my whole life to him because what if God sent me to some weird country and I didn't know the language and like, sounds like South Africa, hey? No. <laughs> God doesn't force us to do something we're going to hate. All right? I think we've got to know that. Wow. He's a loving father. There's a, a great 
uh, verse in Psalm 34. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of the heart. Another way to translate that verse is, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will put desires in your heart. In other words, as we in love with Jesus, as we're delighting ourselves in Him, it's like we have new desires that are His desires that He puts inside us. And so when God's like X and Y and Z, we're like, yes, I, I can't wait to do that thing because it's a desire that's already in my heart that He's put there because I'm in love with Him, right? God doesn't force us to do stuff against our will. Why? Because He actually puts His desires that become our desires and they easy to do because we desire the same things. One way to find out your calling, it's by grace, right? So just look at the grace that's on your life. What things do you do so easily that other people find it hard to do? What things come naturally to you? What are you gifted at? What are your skills? What are your abilities? What deposit has God already put in you? If you want to use that kind of language. What are you passionate about? You still might need to work at that thing, like you might be passionate about playing soccer, but if you don't go and practice, if you don't hone your skills, you don't improve your fitness, you're not going to be a very good soccer player, right? So you might know, oh, these things get me excited, these things I'm good at doing, you might still have to work on them because the full package wasn't there from day one. We've got to grow in our gifting, etc. But I... So our calling is the grace over us, maybe, one way to find it. But our calling is to His mission. I think that's so important, friends. We often, I think, by the language we use, we've got a bit of a twisted, a bit of a warped view of our calling. God's got a calling for you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And it's right. He does have amazing plans and destiny for us. But sometimes we see that through the lenses of our selfish culture, if you want to put it like that, where we think God exists to fulfill my calling. I'm the boss and God's my servant. He must do what I want. He, he's there and I pray and I serve Him so that He can fulfill my dreams and plans. But our calling is always to His mission. And if we have that somewhere, even if it's subconscious, right? God exists for me and my benefit. God exists to make my plans and my dreams come true. If that's somewhere in our thinking, you know what happens? Here's the, the symptom, right, of the root cause. We get upset with God. We get miffed. God didn't do what I wanted Him to do. We blame God. We get upset when our plans don't happen. That's a symptom. No, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of Glendon. <laughs> no, <laughs> put your name in there. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. John chapter 15. I can't wait till we get to John 15 when we get back to John. <laughs> it might take us a little while. What are we in? John 5 at the moment, somewhere there. Jesus looks at His disciples and He says, you know what? You did not choose me but I chose you. Our calling is to His mission. He chooses us, right? We do have a place in His calling because we are one of the many puzzle pieces that make up the big picture. We're part of His calling, not vice versa. Third kind of big idea about our calling 
is that our relationship with God is the engine. Our relationship is the engine. So there should be a picture of a, oh, that's the wrong John 15. That's coming later. Sorry. Wrong John 15 if you were confused. This is a V12 engine. Powerful, right? So Paul says, but God who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal Jesus in me. In other words, Paul looks at his calling, which is by grace, and he says, God had to reveal Jesus in me. In other words, I had to get to know Jesus. I had to have a revelation of Jesus. I had to have a relationship with Jesus. Right? That's part of my calling. He links our fellowship. He links our devotions. He links our relationship with Christ to our calling. He said, I needed revelation of God to become more like Him. And I want to put it to you, this is like the engine of our calling. I'll tell you what it means now. Your call, which is God's call on your life, your calling requires you to have a revelation of Jesus Christ. Your calling requires you to know Jesus. Paul says, God was pleased to reveal Jesus in me as part of this calling and the greater our revelation and the deeper our, our intimacy with Christ, the more we're going to be able to fulfill our calling. Our calling, you achieving your call, whatever that is, depends on your relationship with God, on your revelation of Jesus, of how you see Him, of how you walk with Him. And the more effective we are at this relationship, the more effective we are at our call. The single most, Albert, I felt this was for you (laughs) and for everyone else. The single most important thing about your calling and how you are going to fulfill this calling, the single most important thing is your revelation of Jesus. It's your relationship with God. That's the single most important thing. Not looking for platforms not trying to push open doors. Let God open the doors. You and me attend to our relationship with Christ. So our fellowship, our relationship with God, it's like an engine. It sets us up for achieving our call. Okay? It's the platform. It enables us to walk out our calling, live a life worthy of the calling. But it limits us as well. So Vaughan, I, I drove past you this morning. I flashed you if you didn't know that was me. Um, Vaughn's got this awesome Mahindra Bucky. Like, it's rugged. You can take it. (laughs) Sonia's hiding her head in shame. You can take that Bucky anywhere. Terry's got a double cab. He's got a two. You can take it anywhere. In our our home in the last few months, we've been some sadness. There's been some grieving. I used to own a 4x4 Jeep. I used to. This is the grieving part. Just being vulnerable. I'm grieving my loss. And it had gearbox problems, and I thought, well, I'd paid for an extended warranty. Turns out the company that were underwriting it went under, and so now I don't have an extended warranty. And so the gearbox problems I have to pay for myself. And anyway, sold the Jeep, and like a very good grown-up, I bought a seven-seater family car. Anyway, so I'm still mourning. My car now is quite limited with what it can do. I can put seven people in there. Well done. But I can't take it like Vaughn's car over the mountains and into the wild and go on an adventure. My car limits me with where I can go, 
right? The engine in there, this is a 1.5 naturally aspirated engine. I was like, <laughs> But I can take seven kids to and from school, right? Six, one plus, sorry, seven. The engine, you can't see the engine, right? <laughs> you don't want to see the engine. It's a Honda. <laughs> Where am I going? To school and back. That's right. School run. <laughs> That's all I can do. <laughs> the engine's hidden, just like our relationship with God is hidden. You can't see how much time I spend with God. You don't see that, right? It's hidden. It's behind the scenes. But it's like the engine of my life. It powers my life. It powers my calling. And if I think I have a calling that needs a 4x4 four four Jeep, but I've only got a seven-seater, I'm deluded to think I can take this thing off-road. Yeah? If my quiet times, if my relationship with God are only generating enough power to power a sewing machine, there's no ways I'm pulling a trailer with a... There's no ways my calling looks like Vaughn's calling. <laughs> it's meant to be a really serious point. <laughs> the sewing machine was undoing it. But now seriously, if you have a dream of your calling, and I'm using a metaphor of four by four, if you're... Even if the prophetic words over your life and God himself has spoken in a dream and says, your calling is to plant churches and go to the nations, but your relationship with God is generating 1.5 kilowatts. You, <laughs> you are, friends, am I, is, the, is the point clear? Shall I move on quickly? Our relationship with God determines our calling. And if, to the leaders Ed spoke last week, Sunday, after the church service, it's online, you can listen to it, but the fire inside us, if this fire is a small spark only, there's no ways you're going to light up 12 cylinders. Our relationship limits us with our calling. It sets us up, but it limits us. If you've only got a, a tuk-tuk <laughs> engine, that's the relationship. There's no ways you're going... I'm belaboring the point here, if that makes sense. We don't rise above, in our calling, we don't rise above the effectiveness of our relationship. We can't go further than our times with God. Does that make sense? Despite the dreams, the visions, the writing on the wall, the prophetic words, our fellowship determines our fruitfulness. Say it again. Our fellowship, our fellowship, reveal Jesus in me, Paul says. Our fellowship determines our fruitfulness. Here's the John 15 scripture that will come up on the screen. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, if you abide, if there's relationship, if there's a connection, if you graft it into this vine, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't care if God's written all the days before you in his book. 
If you're not having time with God, there's no ways it's going to happen. Our fellowship determines our fruitfulness. And it's, how does, how does Jesus put it? He says, I in you, sorry, if you remain in me and I in you. It's not that we get saved and do whatever we want. It's Christ in me still through me. Our fellowship determines our fruitfulness. Last point this morning. Our calling is to make disciples. So Paul says, but God who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Paul's calling, the main part of Paul's calling, he did other stuff, but was to preach Christ among the Gentiles. He did lots of other stuff, but if Paul had to sum it up in one line, he'd say, I'm called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So that's Paul's specific call. And I want to put it to us this morning that that's our general call. We're all called to make disciples in some way. No matter what our day job is, what you do Monday to Friday, what you do for fun on the weekends or your hobbies, God has put and God has brought people into our lives that we are meant to invite to church. We are meant to witness to them. We are meant to show them love and kindness and compassion. Show them the heart of the Father, this loving God, to pray for them. To trust for divine intervention. If we pray for someone who's sick, they might get divinely healed. To interpret their dreams, maybe. God's put people around us so that we can make disciples. Here's the thing that it's taken me a long time to learn. Hopefully, it'll take you a bit quicker. We look at people and their calling, and we think, oh, those people have a very spiritual calling, right? Super spiritual calling. You know, he, he's a worship leader, or he's a, he's a life group leader, or he's a pastor, or he's in the ministry, or whatever it might be. Or he's a social worker or a doctor who saves lives. Paul had this really spiritual calling. Planting churches, preaching the gospel. And that's our natural eyes. We elevate some callings and we diminish others. And that is not of God. That is not of God. I have struggled being a pastor leading this church because I'm not a full-time pastor. Maybe I should be. I don't know. I'm just following God. Right? But I look at all my other friends who are pastors and leading churches, and they're all full-time. Have I done something wrong, Lord? Have I missed the mark? No. I mustn't think, oh, a full-time pastor, that's, that's more spiritual, that's better for me than where I am now. I can't have that view. It's taken me a long time to, to learn that. But the lie that many of us believe, if I'm not on the stage, if I don't have a microphone, if I'm not in the ministry, if I don't have a call that looks like this, we have these tiers or these levels of calling. The super spiritual people who pray in tongues, they have those callings. I'm just like, we, we have this lie where we think our calling, because it looks so, like, so much like normal life, it's not important to God. It just looks like everyday life. And I think that so many people have missed opportunities and missed their calling. Because they've believed this lie. They've been derailed. Simply because they think this, these are the special callings and these are like the, 
the next level, but I'm like, my calling's down here. There's no difference. There's no rung. There's no one that's more important than the other. Just because most of our callings are not going to happen on a stage doesn't mean they're any less important to God or any more important to the world. We mistakenly judge a book by its cover, right? We, uh, we get deflated because my calling just looks so average, so normal life. I'm a teacher, I work for this company, or I do whatever. But you know that many things that look ordinary, that look insignificant, are actually really important. So my wife loves beautiful things. And uh, sometimes if we're traveling and she'll see like this big door, like a beautifully carved door. You've seen those, right? Beautiful big uh, wooden doors, beautifully carved, intricate designs. She'll take a picture. We've got lots of pictures of doors on our Google Photos. Um, doors don't work at all unless you have a very small hinge that's out of sight. A big door is swung on small hinges, right? You might think, oh, no one sees my calling, no one sees me, but you might be a hinge, but there's no ways the door's working unless there are hinges in the right place doing their thing. Amen? It might be obscure, not obscure, yeah, obscure. You might be invisible to the limelight, if you like. We think the limelight's more important, but it's not. We miss the fact that God is very much at work in my everyday life, making it supernatural, giving it purpose and meaning. And I want to suggest the main thrust of all of our callings, no matter how they look on the outside, is to make disciples, to see people come to Jesus. Jesus put it like this, He says, follow me and I will make you into fishers of men. That doesn't mean if we follow Jesus, we're all going to be evangelists. All the evangelists love that verse. Oh, you should all preach the gospel. Yes, but differently. As we follow Jesus, he says, I will make you into. There's a making into. There's a process. There's a transforming that as we follow Jesus, he makes us into our calling. But part of that calling is fishing for men. It's reaching out to those who are around us. As we're living out our normal everyday lives, we see the neighbors that God has added around us. We see the colleagues at the workplace. We're placed in a certain family. We, whatever it might be, we see these people, and God's like, I've put them there on purpose, and I've put you there on purpose, that we would reach out, love them, invite them, etc., etc. Coming into land. If, not if, that's not what I've written here. I love reading to my two older kids. Ethan is 10 and Briella is nearly 9. And I started reading to them in the afternoons after school. And we read a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. Anyone heard of The Pilgrim's Progress? As a Christian, if you, hadn't, if you haven't read The Pilgrim's Progress, you should read it. It's the most popular book next to the Bible that Christians read. It's about 200 and something years old, so it's free online by now because all the copyright laws are, you know, they, after 50 years they're gone. Um, but they made a kid's version, so I read it to my kids, and they loved it. And then I read The Hobbit to them, and they loved that. Didn't watch the movie because there's some graphic violence. 
But now we're reading, we have just finished a, a set of three books called the Wilder King Trilogy. And it's like these really cool books written for kids. And it's loosely based on the life of David, King David, Israel's David. And it's, a, it's a fictitious world. It's made up kind of world. Um, but there's, there's many similarities, if you know the story of David, to this young boy, Aidan Errolson, who's the youngest of his family, but this really, um, um, what's the word? Awkward uh, prophet, a.k.a. Samuel, but his name in the book is Bayard, the truth speaker. He's got two goats that follow him around wherever he goes. Like, it's just bizarre. It's a very funny story. Anyway, so, so one day this guy, Bayard, the truth speaker, he comes to Aidan's family, and he says, one of your boys, says to the dad, one of your boys is going to be the next king, the wilder king, right? And, like, brings all the boys, and eventually they find Aidan, the youngest, and, uh, and he says, no, Aiden, you're going to be the wilder king. And Aiden's like, I'm looking after sheep in the pasture, you know. Help me, Mr. Prophet. What must I do? And the prophet's like, you know, watching his goats, and he's just all over the place. And then he says this line, which is repeated throughout the three books. He says, just live the life that unfolds before you. Live the life that unfolds before you. And if I had to characterize my 19 and a half years of following Jesus, that would be a good description. I've just lived the life that's unfolded before me. I got saved, and my mate went to that church, so I went to that church. And luckily, it was a Bible-believing church, so I have a good grounding in my faith. I finished university, and what should I do? Well, I got a job for two years. And then it was a two-year contract, and as the contract was running out, we, Candace and I, we were newly married. We didn't feel I should carry on with that job. And so I said to my boss, well, I don't feel like I should carry on with this job. What are you going to do? I don't know. So I applied for jobs. I didn't like, oh, wait for the job to fall on my lap. I brushed up my CV and applied for jobs. And I got interviews in Stellenbosch. We were in KZN at the time. Stellenbosch, I'm like, ooh, that's a nice place to go. Got an interview in Cambridge in the UK. I'm like, oh, that's a really nice place to go. And you know what? God closed all the doors, and I ended up getting a job in Joburg, which is why I'm here, still in that job, in like a sister company, like a, the same shareholders for the company I was working in in KZN, and it just looked like a natural transfer. Just I'd lived the life that unfold, God closed the doors, and I didn't scream and shout, and I didn't, my life is wrecked because I didn't go overseas or go to Stellenbosch or Cape Town. I sometimes joke with, no, no, let me not go there. Not going to Cape Town. I've just lived the life and followed God as it's unfolded. I've got family in Australia, and my brother says to me, when are you coming to Australia? And I said, I'm not. Why? God hasn't called me there. God hasn't called me there. A few years ago, I was headhunted by a big international firm. I was like, awesome. I'm going to go overseas, live the Europe life, big fancy um, company, and I submitted that decision to a friend of mine who speaks into my life. And I said, hey, this company's headhunted me. What, what should I do? You know, so excited. Someone's noticed me. And he says, well, go and pray and hear what God says. And God said, no. <laughs> so I'm still in Joburg. But I'm not upset. I, I haven't run overseas like many people just to live the overseas life. I've just lived the life, and as stuff has happened, I've sought God and prayed and just been obedient in the little things. So for me, I, it doesn't matter where I am on the planet. It doesn't matter. 
as long as I'm in God's plans. And so I think for many of us, we're waiting for this super spiritual moment, and some people get them. God bless them. I wish I was one. Some people get lights in the heavens, an amazing calling that's easy to follow, but I think most of us, God would say, just live the life that unfolds before you. If there's a decision, go and pray. If you need to fast to hear God better, do that. But just live the life as God unfolds it. Your life group leader says, hey, there's a mission trip to Zimbabwe. Go on the mission trip. Just live the life that unfolds before you. One of the team leaders says, hey, come and be in the cappuccino team. Just join the team. Just live the life that unfolds before you, serving God, knowing that He's with you, knowing that you have the Holy Spirit to guide you, knowing that He wants the best for you, also knowing that it's His call, not, not my call, knowing that God is at work in every single person. Jesus says, my Father is always at work. Knowing that even in ordinary things like making your kids' lunches, there's nothing less spiritual than doing your kids' homework with them. I've done it. I'm, I'm doing it this afternoon again. <laughs> but even those normal things, those everyday things, God can transform them into kingdom things. They have eternal value. Why? Because we can do all things to the glory of God. And our calling is to make disciples. I'm going to end with this thought. Talking about reaching out and making disciples. What God has already done in you is enough to reach those God has put around you. Okay? You don't need to have get your 20-year anniversary of being a Christian certificate. Now I can preach the gospel. Now I can invite someone to life group. No. You don't have to do a whole bunch of training courses. I mean, they're helpful. Go on evangelism course. That's really helpful. How to answer difficult questions. That's helpful, right? But what God has already done in your life up until now is enough to reach the people He has put around you. As you sat down, you would have found one of these. It's an invitation flyer. It's a really cool flyer. As a church, we are very slow at doing some things. Uh, someone on the outreach team asked for, can we just have a flyer we can use to invite people? They asked more than a year ago. Michael Peters, they finally arrived. Some things we're a bit slow on as a church, slow at as a church. But I want you to take this home. You're welcome to use as a bookmark in your Bible, but then take another one home. Go and invite someone this week. God's called us to make disciples. Go and invite someone to church. There's a whole stack of them uh, at that involvement board. It's not a desk, it's a flat, it's a whatever, wall, involvement wall. If you're the kind of person who like, I want to keep 10 in my car and give them out, <laughs> where I, I'm stopping at the doctor's or the physio appointment, I'm going to take two in and leave them. Take a whole bunch. We'll print more. Exchange brochures with the dentist. Yeah, there you go. They're always giving you stuff about your teeth, which is good if you're going to the dentist, right? But invite someone to church. And invite someone to church next Sunday. We're going to start a brand new series next Sunday. It's, it's quite a cool series. And uh, if we can play that video, this is the promo for the series we start next week. Invite someone to join this series.
how to live like Jesus. That is what we're going to be kicking off next week. Very excited about that. Let me pray for us as we're ending. Father, we are called by your grace. You've set us apart from birth. You've had a plan from day one. We might not have known it, but Father, we know that all the days ordained for us are written about us in your book. You've thought about us for millennia. Your thoughts are good thoughts. So Father, I pray as we just scratch the surface of this thing of our calling, we would understand that we are called to run an amazing race that you've marked out for us. It's on your mission, Lord Jesus. And I pray, Lord, like Paul, we would find a way to live a life worthy of this calling. I pray for all of us, Lord, our relationship with you, this engine that's inside us, the thing that is enabling our call. Father, our fellowship with you would make us a very, very fruitful church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning. Have a great week. Grab a whole bunch of flies. If you want to join us for starting point next Sunday, please fill out your details on the clipboard. And theology will start in 10 minutes' time. Yeah.